So tonight I want to talk about uh, working with, working skillfully with our minds, working skillfully with our thinking minds particularly. In Buddhist practice, the emphasis is twofold. One, understanding what freedom is, what liberation of the heart is, what our true nature is. And the second part of the teaching is to understand that which obscures that innate wakefulness and freedom. And much of the way we do that in Buddhist practice is to look at the mind. The Buddha said, the mind is the forerunner of all things. All things arise beginning in the mind. With our thoughts, we make the world. With our thoughts, we construct the world. Working with the mind is the place that we can really... uh, understand the difference between suffering and freedom. When we work skillfully with our thinking process, it's one of the first ways in this practice we can get a little taste of freedom or spaciousness from our habitual conditioning. It can be the difference between... um, habitually being lost in our thoughts or believing our thoughts um, to having space around our thoughts, to seeing them just as a somewhat of an impersonal arising and passing that we don't have to take to be the only, rea- the only reality. So I like to preface this thought, this uh, talk with... Um, Uh, just saying that thoughts aren't bad, they're not wrong, they're not a problem, they're not something to be gotten rid of, because you can't. They keep coming, if you've noticed, like a waterfall. And and uh, the thinking mind is a wonderful evolutionary development. We can create concepts, we can label things, We can imagine, we can create, we can fantasize, we can dwell in memory. Um, We we use thinking in our practice. As I was sitting, I was doing some loving kindness practice and I was realizing, oh, these are thoughts. May you be happy, may you be peaceful. It's a very skillful use of thought. So uh, it's really useful not to see thought as the problem, but really how do we um, come into a skillful, wise relationship so uh, the thoughts serve us rather than them being our master. I know for a lot of people it feels like um, we've inherited these rather large brains uh, without the operating instructions <laughs> and we can't find the off switch. It just seems to be on overdrive. Apparently, some studies have suggested that we think at least 90,000 thoughts a day, which I worked out is one a second, and at least 60,000 of them we thought yesterday. 
I think it's more like 89,550. <laughs> we have an occasional original creative thought. The Buddha said there was nothing, the Buddha was a wonderful uh, um, orator, and but he couldn't find any metaphor that could um, describe the speed at which thoughts arise and pass. They arise in a millionth of a second or whatever the uh, millisecond is. Um, and thoughts uh, spontaneously arise, seemingly. They're all conditioned, ultimately, but they seem to just pop out of the void. Upandita, a time master, once said, any thought can arise in any mind at any time. And it certainly feels like that. They, thoughts, if we pay attention to them, um, reveal a certain impersonality in the sense that the mind thinks itself or the thoughts think themselves. We could do a little experiment if we had more time and I'd say, uh, let's not think for the next 10 minutes. We think we are our minds or we have control over our minds. Yet, how many of us could actually un- could undertake that short exercise? Don't think about a pink elephant. <laughs> Is the mind really in our control? Is it really up to us? So what is that? What does that reveal, this impersonal coming and going of thoughts? When I first started practicing, I complained to my meditation teacher that I could hardly follow two or three breaths without disappearing into some long thought train. Upandita, again, uh, often gives... He'll ask his um, students a kind of a trick question. He'll say, how many breaths can you follow without, uh, without a thought arising and taking your attention away, even momentarily? And of course, the meditator thinks, well, you know, I should say, you know, obviously the more breaths I can follow, the better. And, or how many minutes can you follow the breath without wandering off? And... Um, the, the, the truth is, it's about two, two breaths would be about the right answer. Two breaths without some uh, momentary flickering of some concept, some image, some mental construction arising. It's that common, even in a very concentrated mind, that the power of our thinking uh, is that pervasive. In insight meditation, the first insight people often realize is how consumed they are in their thinking mind. I think when we would ask somebody in the street, well, do you think a lot? They'll say, well, you know, some, you know, but I can concentrate quite well. Thank you very much. Um, When we sit down to meditate and we have a simple instruction like follow the breath or a mantra or a loving kindness meditation, we see how... um, consumed and addicted, actually, to our thoughts. And the second insight often is that our thoughts um, 
are often quite negative and often untrue if we examine them. So we all have sort of PhDs in thinking. We're all experts in thinking. Thoughts come up, we follow them, we drift into them, we analyze them. That's what we practice. If we have a main practice in our lives, it would be called thinking. Which would be okay. It's fine if you want to do that the rest of your life. It will happen if you don't do anything about it. The problem is, it's not a very satisfactory state of being. To be lost and consumed in our thinking is really a sort of substandard form of happiness, substandard form of well-being. For some people, it created a certain kind of pleasure to think. But um, actually, when we look at the times in our life where we feel the most peace, the most contentment, the most joy, the most love, union, sense of the sacred, those moments usually are when thought is either very quiet or absent in our deepest meditation, in our deepest experience with nature or with a lover. Um, At times when the mind is quiet, when the mind is quiet, it allows a deeper connection with experience, a deeper intimacy with the truth of the moment. I remember being out on this recent wilderness trip and there's absolutely nothing to think about or nothing, no need to think about anything. Everything's taken care of. You just follow the trail and, um, and the mind would sort of just amuse itself with thoughts and plans and fantasies and daydreams and, and here we are in this spectacular wilderness, this, these red rock rolling canyons and wildflowers and swallows and beautiful. And occasionally I, the, the thought would come up, why am I thinking this thought? What relevance does it have to anything? And doesn't it just take me away from the beauty and the exquisiteness of this moment? So I'd let it go once that was seen. Most of the time we don't have that observing awareness that says, oh, do I need to be thinking this? Is this really contributing to my well-being, to my happiness? So not only is it um, what I call a sort of substandard level of being to be lost in our thoughts. Not when we're using them skillfully and creatively, but when we're just lost and drowning in them. But we also suffer a lot. A lot of pain comes from our thinking mind, if you've noticed. And there's different ways that that can happen. One of the ways it can happen is when we take our thoughts to be reality, when we take our thoughts seriously. I saw a license plate in my a hometown up in Marin, and the license plate said, number one loser. <laughs> and I thought, there's somebody who's really taken their thoughts to be reality, and is probably suffering pretty badly as a consequence. We often think our, our mind or our thoughts uh, is the objective truth. 
generally we don't question whether our perspective or our thoughts are the truth. We just take it to be so. When we have an assumption about somebody or we have an assumption about what somebody we think feels about us or thinks about us, we usually take it to be true. If we don't have any any quality of mindfulness, we go around believing these ideas we make up about the world and each other. Or our self-views. If we examined our views about ourselves, how, how accurate are they? And how often are they just a negative um, construct that we've taken to be true that is really off the mark? So many people carry around a negative self-belief. I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect enough. I'm not deep enough, wise enough, tall enough, short enough, whatever the enough, whatever the deficiency is. And we believe those. You know, if we had a screen that projected all our thoughts when we were meditating, you know, a screen that up here, oh, this is uh, Joe's thoughts of the evening, you know, we'd be a little embarrassed. And actually, most, of them, most people who, probably, who knew Joe would say, and that's not true. I don't think that about you. That's a very uh, negative self-perception. We're often passive victims to our thoughts in that same way that we take them to be true. We can become very, um, feel a sense of victimized, being victimized by our thoughts. One definition for mental illness is really when people are imprisoned in their thoughts and take their thoughts to be reality, to an extreme. So in that, definition, we're all mentally ill to some degree. And clearly the Buddha would say, absolutely, we're all mentally ill. The mind has no shame. The mind has no sense of modesty. It often, um, I always marvel at what the mind will uh, decide it knows about the world and truth. It will know, oh, I know what should ha- be happening in the Middle East and Kazakhstan, and I can't find it on the map, but I know what we should be happening, what we should be doing there with foreign policy. And It often has a very self-inflated grandiosity. And Buddhist practice often emphasizes the opposite, which is don't know mind, where we have a little uh, healthy doubt about what we know to be true. The mind also fixes things in time, gives a sense of permanence to things. I'm always going to be like this. My life is always like this as if that's true, as if things are staying the same. And then there's the comparing thoughts. How often do we find ourselves comparing our thoughts, comparing ourselves 
better than, worse than. We'll always find somebody who's better and worse than. And it's a, it's a clear recipe for suffering. It's a clear way that the ego is always insecure. And when we buy into it, when we get into it, uh, it's a setup for suffering. So all of these things happen and will happen, and it's not that we have to necessarily stop them happening, we just have to be aware that they're happening. So there's a little space around them, that, that process. So what I want to focus on for the rest of the talk is um, uh, teaching in Buddhism called Papancha, which is a form of mental proliferation. It's a way the mind uh, proliferates in certain ways based on certain experiences. It's a way that our mind distorts our perception and therefore distorts the way we see things. So one of the ways that we do this um, is the way we see the present moment. We see reality. We see what's in front of us through the lens of our conditioning. Clearly, it's not news. We all have decades of conditioning, and it all has a certain effect on our um, development and on our perception, the way we view things. If you were trained by, if you were a dog, and you were trained by Pavlov, the sound of that bell would be supper. You'd be salivating. For us, it's oh, relief, the bell. <laughs> or it's, oh no, I'm having such a good sit. I was once driving in my neighborhood, and it was a beautiful sunny day and I was feeling very happy and joyful and it was last spring, I think. And uh, at the corner of my eye, I saw um, a man gardening who uh, was quite elderly and looked like he had um, a lot of discomfort in his back. He was quite hunched over and um, looked painful, even though he was gardening. And I was driving down the road and I suddenly started to feel less happy. And I started to see the world feeling like it felt a lot gloomier and grayer and hard. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I've got a few decades left and, God, it's going to get harder. You know, I bet it's really hard at the end. And suddenly started to feel depressed. I got to the next stop sign and I was feeling like, why bother? I may as well just give up now. <laughs> I was like, well, wait a minute. Two stop signs ago, I was feeling very happy in the joys of spring. Now I'm feeling depressed. What? And then I was like, oh, I saw that man. That was a certain conditioning of uh, how the world might be with physical pain and suffering and aging. And that totally conditioned my perception and my reality. So I was no longer seeing clearly. I was seeing through a lens. So we all have different lenses, uh, how we were raised our culture, whether we're raised as a man or a woman, whether we're raised uh, according to a different class. In England, I was raised working class, which is a very different experience than being raised upper class. I see the world in a very different way. 
depending on what country you're brought up in. You know, I see things through my English lens as opposed to an American lens. Or what race you're uh, raised in, what culture. Uh, It all affects our perception, our understanding of the way we see the world. And we always take that view to be true, the only reality. But it's always a relative reality. But it has a big effect on the way we navigate through life. If we're raised with poverty as opposed to raised with wealth or scarcity and abundance, we see things very differently. And we all take that to be true. And it's true from a relative perspective. I know in Asia, a lot of countries, um, children are raised in um, Buddhist cultures or Taoist cultures or Hindu cultures where the view of um, the, the human being is one of innate, that our being has innate purity or innate goodness or innate Buddha nature as opposed to being raised in Judaic Christian culture where or certainly in a Catholic culture, which I was raised in, um, we were born with original sin. That's a big difference in how you can look at the world. (laughs) I'm inherently bad, or I'm inherently good. That's going to affect the way we see the world. One of the strongest influences that I see working with people who meditate, but it's working with people in general, is um, the effect of the internal critic, the judge or the superego or whatever label it's called, that arises from our development, from our family of origin, usually. The messages that we received subtly or not so subtly, that we internalize and take to be true. It might be something like, I'm not good enough, or I'm not perfect enough, or whatever I do, I'm not going to succeed at. Uh, These are tapes, messages that we run um, very habitually, very strong, very have very powerful effect on the mind. We take them to be true and we really suffer. We can be meditating and just bumbling along as we do and one day we sit down, it's very hard to follow the breath because we're distracted or restless. And the the critic arises, oh, this is hopeless. I mean, you're never going to be able to do this. How long have you been doing this and how many breaths can you follow and why do you do this? And, we, and if we're not aware, we, we believe that voice. Yeah, I'm never going to be good at this. I'm never, I was never good at anything. So why would I think I'd be good at meditation? Why don't I just give up? When we're not seeing that, it's very painful. So working with the mind, we're cultivating a Teflon mind. Non-stick mind. Can we, see, can we allow the thoughts to rise and just wash off like water washes off a stone?
So a particular way papancha or the way we proliferate arises, um, in a way it's the most common way it arises, is um, since all things are conditioned, uh, these thoughts arise um, based on our experience. And in particular, um, the way the Buddha talked about this anyway, is we have an experience, we have a, a sound of a bell, there's a, a, a sense object, there's the ear, there's contact. Um, with that experience arises a feeling, pleasantness, if it's the bell, we like bells generally. This one's very nice. We experience a feeling tone, pleasantness. If it was a truck outside, it would probably be unpleasant. But either way, based on that experience and the feeling tone, um, there's usually wanting it, liking it, or not liking it, pushing it away. And we don't just leave it there, then we start to think about it. Nice bell. I wonder where they got it. I wonder how much it costs. I wonder if I could buy one. It's a bit big for my house. Maybe I need a bigger house. Mm. And it goes on. <laughs> it goes on. Maybe I could go to Japan, you know, and or maybe it's China, you know. I hear communism's getting less. You know. I'm glad communism's getting less, you know. I like some things Mark said, but no, 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 no. And oh yes, meditation, right? Bell, meditation bell. That's how usually our thoughts arise. That they rise in dependence on experience. We're usually not that mindful to catch the link. Sometimes when we're uh, more slowed down or on a retreat or we're particularly aware, we can catch those thought trends. I was teaching a retreat in India and I was talking to one man who had a particularly good day in the meditation retreat. So much so, his meditations were so blissful and concentrated and clear that he began to think, boy, this is... I just got this in three or four days. What if I went to Burma? I became a monk. You know, went to a cave. I hear they have great caves up in the north. You know, for a few years, I'd be like, you know, Mr. King Monk, you know. <laughs> and so he was off on this whole exciting. You know, it's exciting when you start on these thought trains. And of course, the excitement and create a lot of restlessness. And the rest of the day was pretty difficult, and he couldn't find his breath. And by the next time that I saw him, he was having such a difficult time, he wanted to leave the retreat. Can't do this. Maybe it's the wrong style. Maybe, you know, I had the Tibetan scene over there. The hill is much better. And when we don't, when we're not aware of the thoughts, they run away with us and they take us away from what's happening. Um, that's a pretty harmless example. The way this happens often on retreat, for those of you who've done retreats, but it happens anywhere, it could happen here, it could happen in a cafe. Um, the phenomenon of the Vipassana romance is an example of that. You see somebody on a retreat or on a day long. Or it's kind of more funny when it's on a retreat because you're in silence. So if somebody walks by, you find them quite attractive. There's a sense contact, pleasantness arises. 
If it's pleasant, we like to extend that feeling of pleasantness. We start thinking about it. Oh, what if we got together after the retreat? You know, they seem pretty nice. You know, they were standing behind me at the lunch line. You know, I think that was a sign that they really, you know, we were meant to be. And so the stories go on. Well, we maybe get you know go off to Hawaii and maybe settle down and have kids and you know, or not have kids, whatever you know. And then you see a few years down the line, you know, I don't think it would work out really. You know, I think there's a few, you know. And you get divorced and it's all very messy. And, and then you wake up. So, oh my God, where have I been for the last 15 hours? On a three-month retreat, this can get pretty elaborate. You, know? <laughs> you can have, you know, you're doing interior design and color coordination with the bed sheets and the pillows and... And then you, you talk to them at the end of the retreat and you find out they're from Slovakia and, you know, they cost nothing like you imagined. And so the thinking prolongs the pleasantness. We're, 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 um, we're, I put it, we're hardwired to be lovers of the pleasant. You know, that's, 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 the, that's the nature of being in a, in a physical body is we're, um, drawn to and attached and somewhat addicted to pleasant experience. We create our day every day to have a maximum amount of pleasant experience. From an enlightened perspective, the sad thing is about that is we don't actually know what truly creates happiness. So we keep doing things which we think will make us happy and actually just prolongs that deeper state of unsatisfactoriness. But that's another story. So it can equally happen um, with feeling unpleasantness. An unpleasant experience happens. I know when I was on a couple long retreats at IMS on the East Coast, and I, um, it was very painful to sit, physically to sit. Um, I had some pain, my hips and buttocks. And so it's kind of a drag to be on a meditation retreat and being painful to sit, you know, because you're doing that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so rather than be with the experience of unpleasantness and pain, I was conjuring up all these devices about how I could hang, you know, sort of create this meditation chair that would sort of hang from the <laughs> ceiling. So I'd sort of be weightless and gravityless somehow. And, and yeah, that was my little thought, Papancha. But ways I noticed this more clearly, um, one of the ways is the, the way our mind moves between when it's sick and when it's healthy. When we're physically sick, how we perceive the world and what we think is hugely different to when suddenly we get healthy. You know, we have we have sort of a, a health and sickness amnesia. When we're healthy, we do not remember what it's like to be sick. And when we're sick, we don't, we don't remember what it's like to be healthy, for the most part, you know. And um, that r- really creates our think, it conditions our thinking world. When we're sick, everything seems gloomy and depressed and difficult and hard and painful and depressing. And when we're healthy, there's a lot more positivity. So can we bring mindfulness to 
the relativity of our perspective? Can we not buy so fully the truth of the mind in the moment? And the health sickness is, is a clear example of how it just moves at the drop of a hat. Or when we're in fear, how our, how our thinking is dictated by the emotion of fear. You could say collectively in the country, because of 911, because of uh, the war, because of all the um, so-called threats of terrorism and the red alerts and the green alerts and whatever those things are. Um, it's a collective papancha. It's a collective proliferation based on a mind state of fear. The same as if we're in love. In the expression of rose-tinted glasses, we perceive the world through, through the, through the um, experience of love. The heart's open, everything looks warm and rosy and, and good for a while. What's interesting to me is often we get very um, addicted to our unpleasant thoughts, our catastrophizing thoughts. In that phrase of Mark Twain's, the worst things in my life never happened. (laughs) But we certainly thought about them a lot. What if scenario? What if I run out of money? What if I get laid off? What if uh, my parents get sick? What if my children get sick? And, um, and we spin these a lot. I, on, on the camp, on the, when I was on the hiking trail, there wasn't much to think about. But what if we don't get to this place in time? What if, you know, what if there's not enough food for supper? You know, and what if we run out of camping fuel? And, um, and what's interesting is, you know, usually we like to think because it's pleasant, because we get a little excitement or entertainment or buzz from it. But often our thoughts are very negative and, and, and scary and problemizing. So what is that? So why do we do that? What is, what is the attraction to all these thoughts we think about that are so uh, catastrophic? My sense is we're addicted to drama. We're addicted to the intensity. We live in an, somewhat an intense culture, and we like that intensity. Anything. Anything but the breath, please. Anything but neutral. Anything but just quiet, simple, you know, me. Then there's the mind. Um, another aspect of Papancha is the way we just simply proliferate. We simply, like a thought train, build one thought upon another, upon another, upon another. The Buddha says, what one feels one perceives, one, what one perceives, we think about. And then we think about, we proliferate, and we distort our perception. So it's a similar theme when we, th- we th- think something and the mind kind of just runs away with it in a, in a thought train. It's the sort of thing that, like with the bell, you know, we're sitting in meditation, we feel a little hunger pang in the stomach or a little sensation, a little emptiness feeling in the stomach and and we think, oh, boy, I wonder what's for dinner when I get home. Maybe I'll go out for pizza instead. 
But there's no good pizza places around here. The last good pizza I had was in Venice, I think. You know, those crispy, thin ones. Maybe I should do a holiday in Venice. You know, vacation, gondola. You know, I could meditate in the gondola. Oh, meditation, right back to the breath. Okay. <laughs> And we do that a lot. We just have these nice little daydreams. We just one thought based on another. We associate. That process can be very creative if we're using it creatively, if we're conscious, like if we're writing or problem solving or strategizing. But usually it's just an unconscious drifting. I was on a retreat once. What time do we stop? I'm running out of time here. I think I'm getting caught in my own thought proliferation. (laughs) Well, I should say a few things about working with it. The main common denominator in all these thought proliferations the central character is, guess who? Me or you. So really look at how the self creates itself and maintains itself through thinking. A lot of the, what the, the mind does is it, it's like it's, it's maintaining its own belief in itself by thinking about itself. So in terms of working with um, our thoughts and papancha. When you notice the thinking mind and the proliferating mind and the distorted mind, uh, we don't need to use it as another excuse to beat ourselves up, which is often what we do in the beginning, which is actually only just more thoughts, like we're just judging thoughts. So our primary support for this for this. Uh, awakening more to our thinking world is mindfulness, is simple, bare attention. Being aware that we're thinking, cultivating bare attention so we're actually more in direct contact with our experience, which means, for a lot of us, being more in our body. Most of us live from the eyebrows upwards, if we're lucky. So when we're in our physical body, when we're walking, feeling our walking, when we're sitting, feeling our body sitting, when we're moving about the day, feeling the body, it means we're more in present time. The body is always in present time. Our minds are usually in the past or the future or some abstracted perspective on the present. So being in our body and really knowing what's happening physically is one way of cutting through uh, the, the obsession with the thinking. Staying with our feelings and emotions, we're also feeling them in the body rather than thinking about them. Understanding why we think is a really useful exploration. When next time you catch yourself in a long thought train, notice what the hook is. Is it because it's pleasant? Is it because it's entertaining? Is it exciting? Stimulating?
There's a Korean master called Bankai who used to tell his students, don't side with yourself. So next time you're in an argument with yourself or somebody in your mind, seeing if you can hold a perspective of not siding with yourself and just seeing what that does to the stance that you take in an in a internal dialogue. With the proliferating mind trying to catch the first thought, thoughts are like trains. You know, you stand at the train station, you either jump on them to Venice, or just go, oh, that's actually not going to provide that much satisfaction. I've been there 50 times. It's not actually real. The thought of Venice is not Venice, it's just a thought. Coming into the present moment is actually much more satisfying, actually and deeply nourishing than any thought could be. My teacher, Punjaji, used to say, don't let a thought land anywhere. Don't let a thought land anywhere. Sometimes we can just name our thoughts. Oh, thinking mind, thinking mind, (coughs) proliferating mind. Sometimes we can say enough, enough, and just let go. Sometimes that works. Not with aversion, not with hatred, but just, okay, I know this one. I've been here enough. So since we're running out of time, we're out of time, I just want to leave you with a um, couple of things. One from the Buddha the well-known teaching that he gave to Bahia. Bahia was a young, ardent seeker who was very impatient to know the truth and the essence of the Buddha's teaching. And so he harassed the Buddha during an alms round, which is something that was very uncool to do. You always had to wait till he finished his alms round. But anyhow, he harassed him because he was in such a hurry to get the truth. Give me the truth. Give me the essence of your teaching. I need to know now. And the Buddha's like, no, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. Anyway, he asked him third time, so the Buddha traditionally, once he's asked three times, he has to answer. So he said, this is the essence of my teaching. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. In the cognizing, there is just the cognizing. This is the end of suffering. In the seen, there is just the seen. In the heard, there is just the heard. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. In the cognizing, there is just the cognizing. When we can be with our experience in its bare elemental form, like being with the experience of hearing, as he said, so there is no here, no sense of separation, no there, no other, and nothing in between. When we're just with our experience as it is in the moment, with no concept of self or other, we drop into union, into being. And it's that simple, it can happen in any moment. When you hear the sound of the bell, 
that's just that. Simple awareness, simple presence, knowing what's happening without proliferating, without making anything more than it is. The way to freedom is that simple, that direct, that immediate. To be with things just as they are without adding, proliferating, distorting through our conditioning. As he said, he, she, who has given up Papancha has found the bliss of Nirvana, the supreme peace. Let's just sit for a moment. Simply being with your experience as it is, hearing, sensing, breathing. Aware of thinking as thinking arises. practice and meditation, cultivation of wisdom and compassion be for the welfare and happiness of not just ourselves, but for our community and all beings, all creatures, so that there may pervade peace and harmony throughout the world. for your attention. Very nice to be here and see some new and familiar faces.